Hello and welcome to a new episode of The Wirecast. The Wirecast is brought to you by the Wisconsin International Review, a student-run foreign policy and international relations magazine, or The Wire for short. My name is Sam Maladef, editor-in-chief and co-founder of The Wire. I am joined here today by Jason Geisler, a senior studying political science, economics, and international studies, and Sam Beisman, a freshman majoring in political science and journalism. Today, in WSVM's production studio, Hovering above East Campus Mall, we are discussing cyber and space conflict and the future of warfare. So, for the first time, we have two editors, or two writers in the room to discuss this podcast. So, first off, welcome to you both. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us, Sam. For sure. Uh, But like we've done before, we'll start with a little bit of uh, intro about about ourselves. So, Jason, tell tell us about yourself. What got you interested in writing about space? So, you wrote an article about space. What got you into that? Um, what are your just general interests? So I uh, focus a lot on security studies, looking at a lot of conflicts uh, in different kind of domains. Uh, really interested in civil warfare, uh, but I think if we want to look at different domains that, and this conversation is kind of looking at that specifically, that space, cyber, and, and these different platforms that just have no precedent uh, are some of the more important things that we can go in. And so just kind of got curious about what <laughs> what different places we could be seeing warfare in the future and dove into it to write this piece. And it was, it was fascinating. I learned an incredible amount along the way. Awesome. Cool. And tell us about just your background. Where are you from? You're a senior. So <laughs> the, the million dollar question yeah, that everybody is, hates to hear, what are you going to do? Well, uh, yours, mine, and my parents' favorite answer to that is, uh, I have no idea, Sam. Great, uh, cool. <laughs> but I will be graduating, so hey, there's, there's that. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm originally from Wisconsin. I'm a Wisconsin guy through and through. Uh, okay. And, and so being at this university and getting to talk on this show has been one of the last things I get to do, I guess, as a senior here, which is a little sad. But. Great. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a goodbye show then. Yeah, yeah. That's, I like that way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sam, the same question, but you're, you're a freshman, so you have the whole time ahead of you. Where are you from? What, do you, uh, what got you interested in what you're studying? What's the goals? Well, right now I am studying political science and journalism, and maybe if I can make the journalism thing work, that would be great, but I'm also kind of considering a career in immigration law. While I haven't declared a major, and while the university doesn't offer a minor or certificate, I am also studying Spanish, and hopefully with that set of skills it could catapult me into law school and into a res- career in the respective field. But I wrote the art- one of the articles that we're discussing today on cybersecurity because it's something that I'm interested in that I don't think a lot of people are concerned about, and I think we should be. One of the biggest news stories that hit this year was the Cambridge Analytica scandal with Facebook, where over 87 million people had psychographic data taken from them without their or Facebook's knowledge. But there's plenty other instances where cybersecurity breaches have had real concrete impacts on people, firms, or even governments. And I think it's I think it's only going to increase in prominence and impact as time goes on and as we become more reliant on the internet and cybersecurity as a society. Yeah. Well let's let's start there. For if, sure. If we're getting into it. So you wrote an article, Tomorrow's Warfare Held Back by Today, uh, in this great website called The Wire. Check uh, it out online. Yeah, it's <laughs> fantastic. Uh, but walk us through the article. What's your main argument there? 
Well, my main argument is that right now we are we are at a time in which cybersecurity is becoming more important because cyber attacks are becoming more impactful, while the United States is falling back in its cyber capabilities when compared to other major states with considerable military might like China and Russia and even some rogue actors like North Korea and Iran. However, because of partisan mudslinging and back and forth within our politics, voters aren't taking this issue seriously. More specifically, because Donald Trump is casting so much doubt on Russian hacking in the 2016 election, continually makes a joke about it and continues to call it a witch hunt and doesn't necessarily take it seriously, in the eyes of his supporters and many other voters, we're not taking this seriously as an issue, and we're not as concerned about cybersecurity and the United States' relative capabilities in the field as we should be. Yeah, that. I mean, there's a lot already there to unpack. For sure. Well, For sure. Let's start with um, one, one thing you mentioned is kind of a slew of different types of cyber attacks that have happened over the past even just four or five years. Oh, for sure, yes. Uh, is there one that you think is more insidious? Jason, feel free to weigh in on this too. Is there a type of cyber attack that we should be most worried about? Well, maybe what we should be most worried about as individuals and as individual consumers are the exploits and exposures of consumer data and individual cybercrime. Um, right now, uh, the general economy loses around 44, uh, $445 billion annually due to cybercrime like identity theft, um, the theft of credit card numbers, and other types of crime like that. So that kind of attack, which can be conducted either by a government or just by an individual rogue actor, can compromise your identity as a consumer and end up costing the global economy billions of dollars. But Maybe the kind of attack that we should be most concerned about are these larger state-level attacks that can have just as much of an impact as any type of hard-power military maneuver. One of the first examples of this, as I touched on in the article, was the 2005 computer worm Stuxnet that the United States used to disable 984 of Iran's nuclear centrifuges, which was a considerable blow to its nuclear capabilities at the time. And that could have just as much of an impact as flying military jets and bombing the t that type of institution as well. And these types of attacks are still continuing into today. Um, as I also touched on in the article, a Russian malware attack uh, allowed them to destroy around 80% of Ukraine, Ukraine's Howitzer artillery guns during the invasion of Crimea. So it was a lot easier for them to annex Crimea when they did that a couple of years ago. And uh, oh, something that I read just recently, I believe, in the New York Times points out that Russian hackers have had access to large swaths of the United States power grid for multiple years now. And only recently did our military become aware that this breach had been made and that they had the ability and opportunity to shut off complete parts of the United States power grid if they want to. So what we're seeing here is that as we become more and more reliant on the internet and technology as a society, more and more of our infrastructure and military might is becoming reliant on the internet and reliant on technology. But that leaves it open and exposed to vulnerabilities from hackers. And as a result, some of these cyber attacks are going to have just as much impact on a country as a real hard power strike. And I think we do need to be concerned about that.
I want to latch on that last comment about the the interconnectivity of of individual devices as well as state infrastructure, because I think that that is the main reason why this is as concerning Mm -hmm. as it is. Um, And I kind of want to uh, reflect on this question a little bit differently in that I think that there's kind of four different different dynamics that we need to consider. You need to look at, at the ways in which cyber can be used from a state actor against a state actor, non state against non state, and then the crossover is there. So non state against state and state against non state. And mm-hmm. I think that those are have different threats. Uh, and I think what is most threatening to people is different depending on those two actors. And and Stuxnet I think is the best example of state on state uh, cyber warfare. And it's the the kind of children <laughs> malware that has been developed out of it like Triton and Flame. Uh, are, are examples of how prolific sure. that malware can be continued to be used in new and innovative and destructive ways, um, especially when you have state era apparatuses that can utilize, you, you know, in, in the design of Stuxnet, there was uh, input by a lot of nuclear engineers into how centrifuges can be most readily affected and damaged in a way that would not be well noticed. And that's something that, that state actors can do uh, in a way that we don't have to fear from non-state actors, right? We don't have to think about um, terrorist organizations or even, you know, uh, organized crime from rounding up a, a gang of engineers and designing how to best, or, you know, bankers or whatever to, to best steal funds. That's probably not the way they're going to go. So in, in that camp, I'm more concerned about ransomware. I think it's uh, something that your normal person doesn't think about a ton because it's usually not targeted at normal people, right? You're looking at mm-hmm. entire healthcare systems. You're looking at banking systems, things that uh, while temporarily shut down will eventually be overcome. The public is a little ticked off and then they eventually kind of get over it because, oh no, we lost several million dollars, but in the grand scheme of things, I'm still okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a power that I think non-state actors will slowly increase. Uh, it's not an incredibly difficult set of, of malware uh, relative to more complex bugs like Stuxnet. So on a, on a more non-state level, I would be more concerned with ransomware than uh, some of the other malicious uh, cyber warfare mechanisms. True. And just to give some numbers to that, one thing that I pointed out in the article is that experts believe that ransomware attacks extorted over $1 billion in 2017 <laughs> alone. And an additional interesting point, that's a 400% increase from 2016. So, I mean, you're mm-hmm. absolutely right. These attacks are expensive and costly and impactful already, but they're only still growing. Yeah. So, I think one place I'd like to... <clears throat> Um, stick on with with talking about cyber cyber attacks is something you mentioned earlier, Sam, about how the United States didn't even know that Russia had access to a lot of uh, just grids throughout the United States. And I think that 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 is something that we're not really appreciating enough um, because because that type of de- impact, if they were to you know flip that switch and do something with that, and I mean. There's so much more beyond that, too, that we don't even know. If if we just found out that they're there, we don't even know where they are elsewhere. Um, and so in the event that uh, a more serious attack does occur, uh, that cyber is coupled with other types of conflict, um, I, think that, I think that part is something that we should be most concerned about. Because, I mean, these ransomware attacks are bad, and they, they take a lot of money out. But at the end of the day, it's money which is important and it's valuable and et cetera. But it's, it's substantively different that if the entire power grid were to go down, 
uh, just for the sake of, I mean, hospitals, retirement homes, people's living, uh, the amount of fires that could result from that type of electric shock. Uh, I think that part is where I'm most concerned. And I'd love to hear either of your thoughts. Where where do we think that's headed? So I, I want to hit on that in two. I agree with you. And I, and I agree with you for two primary reasons. One, uh, I think that infrastructure is one of those, again, one of those things that's very prevalent. And it's, uh, you know, it's critical to our lives. And you don't realize it. Uh, and so the sudden absence of an electrical grid or some other form of um, infrastructure that could be taken out via cyber attack, cyber attack excuse me, uh, those effects are hard to prepare for because you don't have a public who's ready to support preparations for it, yeah. quite frankly. And then the other side is uh, I think that that could be incredibly psychologically and morally uh, destructive to the United States in particular if that were to happen here. Um, there's kind of this invincibility concept, I think, in the American public. We don't get attacked on our soil much at all. Mm -hmm. um, and those times that we have have been treated incredibly, incredibly seriously. And uh, simply being, uh, seeing our electrical grids being taken out uh, in a more concerted effort, so not some of this, uh, w what I believe to be more of a kind of testing type phase that, that some of the uh, incidents we've seen in the past were. They weren't large-scale coordinated efforts to actually disable uh, American powers or other infrastructure. But doing so could, I think, incredibly uh, alter the landscape of, of public opinion uh, and then how that will shape public policy, uh, particularly foreign policy. Does this then start us uh, in a you know, sudden monsoon of spending towards cyber defenses that <laughs> if we were concerned about it now, we would be doing already? But um, so I'm kind of concerned about the ways in which an attack could affect the American psyche, essentially, and, and just disrupt American life to an extent that we haven't seen in a quite a long, a long time. Oh, for sure. And I think one of, the, one of the kind of themes that you touched on there is that right now, when it comes to cybersecurity, our policy is very reactive, right? Yes. We're not yes, necessarily... Exactly. Our, our law right now is behind technological advancements. And we can use the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal as an example, right? I mean... We've known for years that companies have been gathering psychographic and other forms of data on us, right? But it takes some huge breach of Facebook's policy and a huge scandal where, you know, some 87 plus million users have their data harvested without their permission for Congress even to consider regulations against this one company. And it's the same with all of with these other cybersecurity fields. What's it going to take? for the United States Congress to pass legislation that addresses these issues. And if that happens, are we going to do that in the best light? Are we going to make the best decisions if we're reacting to something rather than figuring it out now and proactively developing legislation in preparation for something like this? So we'll, we'll get into what the United States should do and what we think will actually happen uh, towards the end of this podcast. But I want to turn now to the other subject of our podcast, which is space conflict. So uh, as we've already discussed with cyber, there's a lot of gray area in what is and is not acceptable in cyber as there is in space. Um, so Jason, you wrote uh, an article in this great website called The Wire uh, called Space, the New Military Frontier. I was wondering if you could walk us through that article. Absolutely. So uh, it kind of looks at more of the current state of affairs uh, in the militarization of space, some of the history that's built up to it. So some of the, the treaties that have existed since uh, really the, the whole Cold War era, um, as the Soviets and the U.S. were looking at rocketry, there uh, were different points in time through a couple different administrations 
um, who were all interested in trying to limit what was going to be happening with rocketry in space in terms of its militarization. Um, however, uh, most of these treaties were, so a lot of them were initially bilateral. Eventually they got multilateral as the UK and France and mm -hmm. these other nations started joining in. Um, but they don't really have effective control mechanisms. Uh, they're basically uh, let's all pinky swear not to do this. Um, and that's kind of all they were. Uh, I think the thought at the time was that there'd be so much world pressure uh, to abide by these agreements because the stakes were so high that if nukes were deployed to space, uh, that, that's just kind of a thought no one really wanted to consider. Mm -hmm. That's not the case anymore. And so now you have China and Russia in particular, whose space programs uh, and militaries, their air forces specifically, are essentially intertwined. Um, developing technologies that are both defensive and offensive uh, with regards to space. And, and one uh, that I specifically point to in the article, in 2007, China, uh, without alerting any other spacefaring nation, used a rocket to uh, decommission <laughs> one of their own weather satellites, uh, which, of course, freaked out everyone a little bit because no one likes it when things start blowing up in space with no one's knowledge. Uh, but that <laughs> but that's, that's kind of exemplary of China's demonstration that this is something that they're clearly understanding is at least reasonable, if not a likely direction that the world will be going in. Russia seems to be uh, on a similar plane, and then the U.S. isn't. Uh, and I know we're going to get a little bit later on into looking specifically at the U.S., uh, the U.S.'s involvement. But essentially, I, I, I think that at the, the current rate that things are going, the U.S. needs to get more serious about its involvement in particularly defensive capabilities, but if necessary, offensive capabilities in space. If that means something as intense as developing a, a sixth branch of the U.S. Armed Services, an idea that has been tossed around a few different times, mm -hmm. um, maybe that's the route to go. I, I don't necessarily know, but that, that's kind of the direction the piece is eventually going in. Yeah. So, I mean, just with cyber, there's a lot to unpack here. I think one thing that makes space a little bit uh, different than cyber, yet just as interesting, is that cyber is inherently a much more covert activity. The United States did not want Iran to find out about Stuxnet. Otherwise, it would have been a useless activity. No one wants to find out who's behind the ransomware attacks. Whereas with space, you can just get a telescope and you can see the things that are up there. You might not be totally abreast of what they're capable of or what they're doing, um, but there's a way to know what's out there. What's different then, uh, and I'd love to hear what you both think about what that means, is that we don't we know what's there, but we don't have any rules about what we can put there. So there are these international treaties, but without enforcement, they're largely toothless and useless. Um, which means that, as you mentioned in your article, there's there are you know commercial satellites up there, weather satellites up there. A whole lot of debris up there, um, but there's no, there's no, no one regulating it, no one guarding it. So, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so there, it's 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 a bizarre situation because it's incredibly tightly regulated, and then the regulations are ignored a lot. Is actually how I'd characterize sure. the use of space right now. So there, there are international organizations uh, under the, I think all of them are under the UN umbrella, but I might be mistaken, um, and they. They're, they're focused on commercial satellites because you can't have an orbit if you're going to start crashing into each other. Uh, it defeats the entire purpose. <laughs> and then we have more debris than satellites, and that, that doesn't help anybody. So it, there is this really strict regulation that countries realize is super important because no one would have GPS technology. No one would have accurate weather data if we weren't able to facilitate this as a whole world. Um, 
but that doesn't stop everyone from also wanting to get the leg up on more offensive or defensive capabilities. And that's where we start getting into trickier situations. Um, I think that the, the lack of coordination in that direction is not different than previous large-scale weapons projects. I mean, if you, you think about the original development of nuclear technology, right, that there was arguments within the administration and the actual project. Oppenheimer himself thought that we should be sharing secrets with the USSR because that parity would be a safer world to live in. Mm-hmm. That, that argument isn't really being had right now. There's pretty <laughs> much no one who's on that support train. Everyone thinks that, oh, everyone at least pre- uh, looking in Russia and China are thinking, you know, we, this is the direction we need to go and this is the direction that we need to secure. Yeah, so I think... In space, there's a less of a concern about these non-state actors, right? I mean, you're not not too concerned. You said this off-air, Jason, that ISIS is going to build a rocket that can effectively get to space and do something that we're looking for. I mean, it takes companies years upon years and tons of capital investment just to get a rocket that blows up halfway yeah. to the <laughs> atmosphere. Um, so it, it is a state-to-state question. What I think is um, most concerning about this, and it gets into um, the larger question I want to ask with both space and cyber, is when we get to an active war. So in space, there is a very, I'm not an expert on rockets per se, but I can imagine a world where you send up a rocket that just takes out satellites and and mass takes out satellites. Yeah, I mean, that's what, that's what China's rocket was in yeah. 2007. Exactly that. Exactly. And, I mean, you send a few up there, you take out the U.S. government satellites, and, I mean, that, that could be really catastrophic for what the United States is looking to do. And at what point, though, does that become considered an act of war? And I want to couch this whole conversation. We could talk about space and with cyber. In something we had mentioned earlier about American public, And I think that the U.S. has a very limited appetite for any type of serious military intervention. I think even stemming back from Vietnam, uh, you can look at the Gulf War as somewhat serious military intervention, but it was very protracted. It was not a huge deployment. And uh, I mean, it was geared to be explicitly a success. Um, And then the Iraq War, while it's much longer, obviously, it's reinvigorated that hatred of conflict and has always been a more minor effort. Not that that this is an important issue and that um, people aren't spending a lot of time thinking about it, but the number of troops committed to that does not really compare to Vietnam or the Gulf War um, in general. So... In this world of cyber and space where these types of fringe attacks can really change a lot, um, what should we expect of what, what we consider to count as an act of war? Well, I think part of the problem, especially when we're talking about cyber, is that we really don't have proper definitions for that. Um, One of the pieces of research that I read when researching this article, but I didn't necessarily include it in the article, was a piece, I believe, from Harvard that discussed how what the military needs to do is properly define which type of cyber attacks justify what. Like, is an attack that disables 
portions of American infrastructure in active war is a cyber attack that conducts a ransomware attack on a hospital or municipal government service in active war. Because right now, they're pretty much clumped into the same definition. And we don't really have a proper designation in our vocabulary as to what justifies what. But I guess in my opinion, and, and the other um, the other difficulty here too in defining something as an act of war or not harkens back to something we were talking about earlier in that with cyber attacks, it's a lot more difficult to cast blame and it's a lot more covert for, I mean, for example, one of the most prominent and maybe even pop culturally relevant cyber attacks of recent date was the cyber attack on Sony Pictures in response to the interview movie. Now, most fingers point to hackers from North Korea, but there's still a small body, but a body of evidence that suggests it might have been other actors. And even in this case, when seemingly the justification for blame is clear, there's still a little bit of speculative evidence that points otherwise. And as a result, it could be much more difficult to cast something as an act of war if we can't clearly place the blame for the act. If, you know, a couple military jets buzz over and conduct an airstrike on one of your bases, you can figure out where they're coming from. You can figure out where they're going. You know who's responsible. But if all of a sudden you come to work and you don't have access to a bunch of your files or all of a sudden the United States power grid just goes snap, sometimes we don't know. And that can make it really difficult to justify that as an act of war. So I think what needs to be done is a more a better enumerated vocabulary as to what kind of cyber attacks justify what and then more development of cybersecurity prowess and processes so we can better identify and conduct research into what countries and actors are doing what. I, I pretty much agree with everything on Sam just, just gave there. So I'm going to kind of touch on the other part that you were getting at with your question, looking at uh, U.S. public's kind of perceptions and especially about conflict. And that's why I think this is such a bizarre thing that we're even talking about how little we're funding this and how little the public seems to care because policy-wise, this seems like a home run to me. The, mm -hmm. This is, you know, the U.S., you're right. I mean, the U.S. has not had an appetite for direct military intervention uh, for a, a while. I would argue back to Korea, quite frankly. But Th this isn't that we're not we're not sending you know our sons and daughters to go fight in a country we haven't heard of to go fight a force we don't care about this this isn't that we're talking about money for the most part we're talking about funding rocket research we're talking about deployment systems we're talking about computer scientists so we're talking about building a wartime economy that's based entirely on not building bombs but training engineers a and that's something that you know policymakers are already supporting in, in myriad ways. And the, the idea that we could successfully, uh, you know, infuse cash to create a better educated labor force. And some of that will, yes, be used to create and develop more advanced defensive and offensive capabilities on these new planes of warfare. And I, I think that it, I, I guess I'm curious if either you have thoughts on is this just a public that doesn't care and that's why policymakers thus don't care? Because it seems to me that this could be, you know, win-win-win type deal for a policymaker. I'm getting you jobs, I'm paying for education, and I'm funding the military. I'm being hawkish and dovish at the same time. You know, who doesn't like that? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think there's probably something to be said about the institutional 
um, stickiness of things that I, you, so you mentioned earlier about the the potential for a sixth branch of a space that would be the space core. And I'm just looking at the military. There are space elements in the Air Force. There's space elements, Army and Navy. They don't want to give that up. Yeah, and the, the, uh, I can't remember the name of the Air Force general who stated as much. But, that, uh, yeah, pretty much the same words of there's no need for this. We've got it handled. You know, let's keep on doing what we're doing. So I think I think there there's some bit of just institutional mm. stickiness. But you're right. I don't, I don't really understand how this isn't getting more support because it seems like a like an obvious move. I don't, Sam, I don't know if you have any yeah, thoughts. Please give on us that. a counter narrative because we're not doing it right now. Counter narrative. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I if I'm playing devil's advocate, I just think it's probably because there are other things people are concerned with right now, and a lot of things that are a lot more concrete. Like when we're talking about cybersecurity, we're talking about a place you can't see, right? We're ta- we're talking about an area of military policy that is intangible and you can't touch. When we're talking about space, we're talking about things you mistake for stars. We're talking about things that are so far <laughs> away, you you wouldn't know what they are unless yeah. you've got a cool telescope that all the other kids are jealous of. So I think part of it is just it's so distant and intangible and kind of kind of dense that it's not it's not a priority for voters and it's not a priority to politicians. It's easier to talk about things that are more relevant and more concrete to voters and constituents, like some of the things that are coming up right now in the United States, like gun policy, immigration policy, and a bunch of that stuff that's just practically more relevant rather than stuff that's intangible and, I mean, literally and figuratively very distant. And on the other hand, when it comes to military spending, that's, I think that is kind of a dividing issue in the country, to be honest. I think that in both, I I, I think that it may even be a partisan issue whether to spend more or to spend less on the military. And uh, in one version of this story, it is a costly investment to invest in a new branch of the military and in new cybersecure and in new cybersecurity uh, capabilities. Alternatively, there could be a reappropriation of military funds instead. But either way, when we're talking about increasing military spending, that's a partisan issue, and there's going to be plenty of support, but also disagreement with that policy issue as well. So. I do think there are some institutional difficulties that we've touched on. I do think there's some kind of disconnect or maybe just disinterest within the public. And I think that this could be made into a partisan issue that might get a little bit dirty on the Senate floor, you know? So I, I think that the I think all of those points are fantastic. I really like your comment about the disconnect because I, th- I that's real. Um, I think you can see that. So, I mean, even during the Vietnam War, you hear the story about how at least 25% of the country had no idea where Vietnam was on a map. Mm-hmm. That, uh, or the people who, during um, the, the Russian invasion of Crimea, were more, the people who were more likely to put Crimea in Kansas, w- thinking Crimeas in Kansas were more likely to want us to defend it. Right. The difference, though, is that these are hard things. Um, you know what a gun is. You know what a plane is. It is a lot harder to understand what a cyber attack is. Yeah. And it's a lot harder. T- I, don't, I mean, 
I'm paying a lot of attention to this. I don't really understand how satellites work still. <laughs> like the actual technology behind yeah, yeah. satellites. Yeah, take it back a step. I don't even know how planes work. <laughs> gra- gravity is a thing, you guys. Those things shouldn't work. And satellites try to defy it even greater. So now we're really having uh, oh, trouble comprehending this. No right. sense. No <laughs> sense. But then imagine for a public that doesn't know where Vietnam is during the Vietnam War, what trying to imagine spending all of this money on a satellite or satellite capabilities when they don't even understand how these things work, where they are in space, what the value that they are for them. And then cyber is even more complex that people just have no idea. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. There, there needs to be like a PR playbook on untangible things. Like we, we get people hyped or like at least ticked off about uh, like raising the interest rates, like the Fed raising interest sure. rates. See, like we can get a population excited about interest rates, but we can't get them excited about rockets. Okay, Are you kidding me? Like, there there has to be plenty of examples of. of I mean, we went to the space before we landed on the moon, and people were hyped about it then. Oh, I'm, sure. I'm sure that if we look back at some of the ways in which government was able to kind of intertwine the economic benefits, the defensive benefits, you know, the patriotic aspect, all these kind of things. And we kind of look at how that has culminated before into support for these admittedly very abstract kind of, uh, of goals. Um, we might find better better avenues to, to get a public that's at least willing to do this, if not themselves asking for it. But you're right. As of right now, we, we don't have those elements in place. To be fair, I do think it is changing. I do think more and more people are becoming concerned about topics of cybersecurity in space in regard to military spending, but it's also in response to these things becoming more and more of an issue, right? Like now we have more people talking and being concerned about data privacy, but it's as a result of these multiple data breaches and scandals that we've seen. And while yes, interest is increasing in these intangible topics, it's, it's in a reactive way. And that uh, we touched on this earlier, but that leads to a reactive policy making process in which we may not be at the ready or best equipped to make the policies that we need to. And we might make hasty decisions as a result. So in, in explaining our 10 year deficit in pretty much both of these fields we're talking about right for now. Sure, <laughs> for sure. So you, you touch on the next thing I want to get to uh, is about how the United States should prepare and respond. So there are this this bifurcates, right? There's pre preventative and reactive, right? Um, on both ends, I think this is something I've talked about before on this podcast, and it's a concern I've had generally with foreign policy, is that there is there is the possibility for our um, enemies to have these minor movements, right, that uh, slightly disrupt things but are never enough for us to justify, certainly not a military attack, um, but maybe even any response. Uh, the the place I always go to is the South China Sea, where China has slowly just started building up. In the U.S., aside from sending a few ships in, which I think is the right move, hasn't done much. Um, cyber and space both pose even more serious risks, I believe, um, than a lot of these on-the-ground issues. So I'd love for both of your takes on how should the United States be preparing for this, uh, on the preventative side and then on the reactive side. Because, I mean, we can pre- prepare all we want, but at a certain point, we're going to have to respond. And how should these responses look? So I actually would kind of disagree with your, I guess, the the premise there that Go for it. kind of both <laughs> kind of both of these things are, are an escalation of some kind, or they're like a notch above the the kind of ground involvement. And in that I, I actually think that 
developing cyber technology and, and, and offensive capabilities could be a great way to have proportional retaliation to these minor incidents. You know, we don't need to deploy a Stuxnet every time that somebody, you know, sneezes on our base in Saudi Arabia or something. <laughs> we can deactivate a very localized power grid, right? You can, you can demonstrate the capabilities that if China wants to mess with us in the South China Sea, we can deactivate one power grid, we can deactivate 100 power grids. All right, and, and that's that's one way that I think cyber can actually be used as to to broaden the scope of like appropriate reciprocation uh, reciprocation on uh, things that are not necessarily like acts of war, but they're kind of conflicting with American interests. And so we kind of want to push back. We don't we don't need to launch rockets. We don't want to. We certainly don't want to deploy troops. But you know, we can uh, we can maybe show them that we can <laughs> disable something here and there. Uh, space, though, I think you're absolutely correct. That's that's. <laughs> you're either putting weapons or defensive capabilities in space or you're not. Like that that's a pretty big difference. And that's why I would encourage looking primarily at the I I, th- I think the main thing here is to preserve the United States capability of continuing to use the um like outer stratosphere for satellite technologies as well as ensuring that we can just leave our gravitational uh, field and, and go further. So if, if any one country gains supremacy over the air immediately around Earth, they could, in theory, prevent any sort of rocket exit from any other country. That's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that I think we should be avoiding. Uh, I'm less concerned about, you know, the old school Star Wars deploying nukes. You know, that that's Robert not the Reagan direction. Lasers. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's not the direction. It, well, actually, I mean, if we could do that, that'd be great, but I don't think we're going to be able to do anything like that. Laser. <laughs> uh, Lasers might be a little off there still, but so they actually more in line with that. The the having satellites capable of shooting down rockets that are trying to affect our other satellites. That's the kind of thing that I think is more advantageous. That's proactive. Reactionary is if China or Russia or God, God help us another state actor does deploy weapons of mass destruction to outer space. That is when you you know we need to step up to a whole different realm. But I don't think that we should be escalating it that far. Um, I think we should be looking principally at defensive capabilities to ensure that the infrastructure that we have in satellites can maintain its position. For sure. I would say I would say the same, especially with cybersecurity. I think a lot of our vulnerabilities come in the fact that we don't have the proper defense uh, capabilities with some of our with some of the things that we're reliant on when it comes to cybersecurity. The encryption isn't there, some of the other online infrastructure isn't there, and and a lot of new technologies that we're becoming reliant on, like Internet of Things technologies and other things that are connected to the internet that typically weren't, they're not necessarily designed in a way to be properly encrypted or secured. So we're becoming more reliant on technology that is even less safe and has even more vulnerabilities to hacking and exploitation than other types of cyber technology. So as a result, I think the first step we need to take on cybersecurity grounds is increasing our defensive capabilities and just preventing a lot of the vulnerabilities that we have in our system right now. Um, space, I think, again, I think defense is the right option, but I I don't know what that would look like because what type of option, what type of defense would we have for anti-satellite missiles? I'm I, I'm genuinely I'm genuinely I'm posing this question to the room as well. Like, I mean, if these satellites are up in orbit, how much of a capability do we have to take down one of these missiles fired at one of our satellites? And uh, and aside from that. 
if there if there aren't really any practical types of defense strategies, I think we have to maybe we have to be focused on matching power for power and having those type of capabilities ourselves. Because if one missile can take or a couple missiles can take down GPS in the United States, that's a huge blow to our infrastructure and that's a huge blow to any type of military capability. And as a result, if we can't defend against that or if there's not a practical way to defend against that, we're going to have to be able to inflict the same type of damage ourselves. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's a fair concern with regard to, to space defenses. Um, I, I think that, I mean, I, I'm not involved in, in rocketry and all these types of things, so I right. certainly don't know the, the actual military technology that full exists. Disc- full disclaimer, we are not rocket scientists. Yeah, we are not rocket scientists. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but there, there have been... There are things that have already been released as as alternative proposals that the U.S. government did not go with um, that were intended to prevent conventional munitions from, uh, so primarily ground-based rockets that would be targeting satellites. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are things that we already said we're not doing. So my assumption is we've already done them or something comparable or perhaps even something better um, for ground-based anti-satellite munitions. So that, that, that is kind of the realm that I, I believe the United States is currently already in, or at least we have plans to get uh, those technologies capable of deployment, even if they aren't going to be deployed anytime soon. Okay. Um, I, I, want, I also think that we have to consider that all of these domains, although we're, we're interested in these kind of new realms, right, that, that we're looking at cyber, we're looking at space, but that doesn't take away ground invasions, right? Just because we're going right. into new realms doesn't mean that soldiers uh, you know, with firearms are now irrelevant. And so I think that there's still kind of this middling ground that we're in right now that if, uh, if China, for example, were to use a rocket, a ground-based rocket, to take down a, government-owned, a U.S. government-owned satellite, um, whatever it was, without alerting anyone and without, you know, as proportional response, perhaps. That doesn't mean that we now have to shoot down a rocket. That could mean that we mobilize the Navy that's currently active in South China Sea. It could be that we start taking harder stances, um, you know, with things. uh, Actually, South China Sea is pretty much the one I'm going to go back to again. But Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, (laughs) um, so so I think that you're right that we don't necessarily know how things look, but we can know the other kind of ways uh, that warfare starting in space will still kind of spread out to these other domains. Um, so I think that that's just kind of something to keep in mind. Uh, there, there was a question actually I wanted to ask in regard to your initial comments about cybersecurity, and you were talking about the need for defensive capabilities in cyber. And I'm curious, and this is for both of you, but especially you, Sam, well, you're both Sam's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Sam to my left, uh, which doesn't help the listeners. But um, <laughs> Theater of the mind. Theater of the mind. Uh, to what extent, then, should the U.S. government or governments in general be involved in cybersecurity in private software development? Sh- does the government hold a responsibility um, to ensure that all companies are producing software with a certain level of cybersecurity? And is that, uh, and if so, does that come in a regulatory form? In which case, we just like have NSA, you know, randomly testing software, and then if they fail it, then they fine them or something like that? Or is it literally that the U.S. government actively hires software engineers whose job is to consult with private firms to ensure that cybersecurity uh, is is up to snuff? Well, I do think that there needs to be some kind of standard for cybersecurity as 
individual firms and corporations become more reliant on what it can provide. Because, I mean, what is a state if not a monopoly of force, right? And if we can't control all of the force that's occurring inside of our borders, it are, I mean, does that still justify that definition of a state? I mean, I think cyber, I think cyber attacks are a new are our new means of force and they're becoming a more prominent means of force as time goes by and as a state it's our responsibility to protect our citizens from that type of force so i i don't necessarily know if it's about cooperate i if we should frame it in terms of cooperation or regulation i think we should frame it in terms of protection where hmm. may, where one way or another we need to be secure as citizens, as consumers, and you know, in the firms we work for, our jobs, our companies, that we can operate within the borders of the United States without being preyed upon by a foreign power or rogue actor. So in one form or another, I do think there needs to be some sort of cooperation and level of security where we can prevent against cyber attacks because I think it's the responsibility of the state. Um, yeah. So, first off, I concur. I think um, a concern that we've seen with uh, the spread of these Internet of Things technologies, so like smart refrigerators, smart TVs, that type of thing, is uh, the companies making them have completely foregone uh, any real security uh, because they want to get these things out so quickly. So, insecurity is expensive. I mean, it's oh, it's, ex- it's expensive. It's expensive. To yeah. I mean, all, there are a lot of reasons why they forewent security. It just it happened. Um, and so that you're right. There's a responsibility of the U.S. government. I'm not as concerned about the exact lever that they use, whether it's fines, whether it's regulation, whether it's just doing it themselves. Um, I, I don't have a preference there. Uh, we're running low on time, so I want to move on to a couple of things to wrap up. Uh, first, Jason, you mentioned this a couple of times about this reciprocal response. Um, and I, th- I think your original pushback on my question was a good one. And so I want to push back a little bit on yours, too. Um, so the, here's a reciprocal response for you. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the prior to the development of these new frontiers, we knew what was and what was not war, and we knew what was and what was not a reciprocal response. The, what's a potential problem then is when we think we're responding reciprocally and China does not, and then China does something back, and that escalation and that spiraling, you know, whether it's this, these responses are conventional or cyber or in space or what have you, can really become a problem. Is this something we should be concerned about? It's, so, and I'll couch this in another question that we also will have to rush through, is, is how can international organizations help in this situation? Is there a way that we can really establish rules for this that um, make this escalation and spiraling avoidable? That, I mean, you're, you're right. That's, that's the nightmare scenario, is, is misinformation between two sides, two superpowers, they both think that they're doing the appropriate response, and they both think that the other is doing an inappropriate response, and we escalate beyond control. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis arose because Khrushchev believed that it was the appropriate response to nuclear arms in Turkey. Yeah. And the U.S. completely disagreed, and we nearly obliterated the world. That's not an impossibility again. And especially if we're putting, you know, 
uh, cyber technologies that can disable entire power grids. This is a serious concern. And so I think that that might be the role of international organizations um, is this transfer of information. Uh, it's something that that I've I've been more and more interested in uh, is the role of mediation in especially civil wars, um, and that it's, it's the control of the flow of information is one of the best tactics to use for other forms of of diplomacy and interventions in civil wars, and I have no reason to believe that that would be different uh, in in a, a superpower kind of bi- bipolar relationship or bilateral relationship and. I think that the UN might not necessarily be the body. I don't know what the body might be, uh, but I do think that there is a role for international organizations to help ensure that when tensions are rising, when there is a lack of understanding of what is warfare, what is not warfare, how far should one go, communicate that. Start, if, if both the China and the US are freaking out because they both think the other country is going to obliterate them, let's all stop. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's basically what we did in Cuba. And we can do that again, but we need to have people who will talk about it. And international organizations can absolutely facilitate that. I, w- I would agree. And I think that's some, and, and to kind of go back to the original question, I do think that is one of the dangers of these new types of frontiers is in the reaction. Because say a United States satellite is shot down, say a cyber attack is conducted against the United States, but then we respond to whatever aggressor that was with the traditional hard power use of force, maybe like a troop mobilization or some kind of other airstrike, right? Who is the aggressor there? Because we haven't really defined very well what a satellite being shot down or other type of space warfare or even if a cyber attack is a justified act of war, right? We, we, haven't pr- we don't have international definitions and we don't have even concrete definitions within our own country as if to that justifies an act of aggression. So even in that sense, the United States, even though we may be acting in retaliation or even in our own defense, in the eyes of the UN and other international bodies, we may be the aggressor there just because we are using traditional forms of hard power that have already been defined and have clear definitions as to what an act of war or a use of force is. And that puts those bodies against us in terms of international law and aggression. So what I think, going back to the second part of the question, international bodies can do to help with this is we need clear definitions of what is an act of war and what isn't in order so we can properly define and properly place in international law retaliations to these new types of aggression. So we should just, you know, uh, build a body of international law that might actually sustain itself is a small <laughs> task you're asking of us here in the studio. Well, maybe. We can, I don't know. Who knows? Any, any, anything is possible, you know, with the internet, right? That's, yeah, there we so go. So we'll end with uh, the question of a common question to end with the Wirecast is what the future has in store. I'll start um, piggybacking off your last comment, Sam, and give the most pessimistic view. <laughs> okay, great. So, Wait, are so any of us going to have an optimistic view? Uh, okay, I guarantee well, you'll have a hard time getting more pessimistic <laughs> all right, all right, than this we'll, one. We'll hear it. <laughs> uh, so the, the international body of what we consider war has been written after a war. And, (laughs) and I mean, you can cite multiple examples of this after Napoleonic Wars, there was a rule about war. After World War One, we wrote a really bad code about wars. (laughs) And so we had to do it again after World War Two. And it sustained things. The US has not declared war since World War Two. 
uh, after the Cuban Missile Crisis and simmering of tension, some simmering of tensions, we got nuclear nonproliferation international laws. So my my super pessimistic, and I'm not sure I totally think this will happen, but I think the most pessimistic way to look at this is that something is going to have to happen for international actors, powers, the U.S., China, Russia, to get together and say, okay, we need some rules about this because this can't happen again. And the world that we're in with cyber, with space, with nuclear technology is a lot more dangerous for that type of conflict to happen than uh, it ever has been in the past. So make us a little bit happier. You're right. That is more pessimist than I'll be. Uh, what's funny, though, is actually I was thinking the, almost exactly the same thing, um, that there will be a catalytic event that will either lead us to a large-scale war. Well, so, okay, so here's the thing. is, is I believe in the catalytic event that you're kind of talking about, but you, is, in your pessimistic view, you assume it to be war itself or some sort of direct conflict. I think that there is a step before that mm-hmm. wherein things, everyone, you know, Russia, U.S., China, some combination of the three, recognizes that there is going to be a war if there is not some sort of action prior to it. And that could be this, the step where we're all like, whoa, holy crap, like, let's, let's not do that, guys. Let's, yeah. uh, let's do the international law thing instead. Um, but then the, the fallback is, is if can't come to the table, can't agree on anything or whatever, it does lead to a conflict, and then from that is born greater international law. But I think there would be a lot of bodies in, in the wake of that uh, that could be avoided if we get to the brink and then everyone's like, whoa, crap, we got to not do this. <laughs> so I basically agree, but I think that there's one possibility ahead of the actual war uh, that you're a little pessimistic about. Well, I actually think the most pessimistic outcome was that this <laughs> podcast studio is cyber attacked and we could lose this episode and we can't publish. <laughs> but honestly, I think I might be a little more optimistic than you guys because I may be a little more optimistic that some type of notable event but not to the event where not to the stake where it's a cataclysmic war might occur and to the factor where it motivates either the u.s or international bodies to take action on the issue because cyber warfare as we've touched on is much more accessible to actors other than states and an advanced hacking group honestly could have just as much of an impact as maybe certain state capabilities and hopefully Hopefully, it's to the point where maybe an event happens where it's notable enough that it rallies public opinion in at least in the United States and optimally worldwide to the point where some real change is made and we have some real clearly defined laws in the books. However, the same thing can't be said with space. We've made the point multiple times that it pretty much takes a country and not just some rogue group to have a real operable space program and especially one that can be militarized. So while I'm feeling hopefully optimistic about cybersecurity because I feel like some other actor could do something that would motivate us to change the law without causing too much damage, I don't know if the same can be said for space. Well... With that, we'll close. <laughs> uh, I, th- I thought there's a quote at the beginning of your article, Jason, that I think is a yeah. fantastic way to end this article. It's uh, the commander of U.S. Strategic Command, Air Force General John Hyten. He said, there's no war in space, just as there's no war in cyberspace. There's only war, and war can extend into any domain. So with that, we'll wrap up. 
Uh, the Wirecast would like to thank WSUM, UW-Madison Student Radio. We would also like to state the opinions expressed on this show do not reflect the views of WSUM, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, or its Board of Regents. This episode was produced by me and Connor Heidi. The Wirecast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, anywhere you get your podcast. Please subscribe. Please share with a friend. Please rate us five stars. We really appreciate it. It means the world to us. If you have any feedback or want to get more involved with The Wire, email us at thewire at polisci.wisc.edu and visit us online at thewire.wisc.edu. Thanks so much for listening.